Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse in the picturesque hamlet of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Welcome, everyone, to episode one of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are glad you've joined us for what I hope is going to be the first of many episodes. Drew, here we are, episode one. We've been brainstorming about this podcast now for several months. It's great to just be finally sitting in the studio hammering out this episode. I totally agree, John. I'm very, very excited. We spend a lot of hours in impromptu production meetings, mm-hmm. sitting, uh, sipping caffeinated beverages in coffee houses. And it's just great to finally be getting this thing um, out the door, I guess. For those of you who haven't yet, I do want to encourage our listeners to head over to iTunes and download Episode Zero, which is our short introduction to the format of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely, Drew. Episode Zero actually is where I finally explain the meaning of the phrase, the way of improvement leads home. So you definitely don't want to miss that. (laughs) Spoiler alert. That's right. (laughs) So, Drew, what have you been up to so far this new year? Well, 2016 is still young, and as I'm sure you know, we academics never do anything quickly. That's right. Uh, But I am preparing to teach a class on Native American culture, so that means I'm finalizing my syllabus and kind of formulating in my mind what sort of assignments I want to torture my students with. Plus, I'm preparing for my dreaded comprehensive exam. I have to ask, how's Nilsa doing? And before you answer, for those of you who listened to episode zero, you know that Drew is living life as a new dad. (laughs) Well, uh, since the last episode, uh, Nilsa, my daughter, has experienced her first Christmas. She has traveled farther than she's ever traveled before because we drove up to Connecticut to be with my wife's parents. And we had her baptized. So, uh... Needless to say, she's had a pretty busy holiday season. Yeah, you're you're taking uh, your daughter on her first Christmas, and I'm taking my daughter on endless college searches. Hopefully, she's going to make a decision pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, other than that, how about you, John? I uh, I know you are a busy man. What is on tap for you this uh, first few weeks of January? Well, as usual, busy is the right word, Drew. Uh, this week, I've been actually doing the fun job of writing the index for my forthcoming book on the American Bible Society. 
The Bible Cause is the title, and it's due out in late March, and Oxford University Press is publishing it. And then I've been actually poking away at a preface and a new epilogue. Uh, Westminster John Knox Press is going to publish the second edition of Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? And we're hoping, if everything goes well, that'll be out in the fall. So, yeah, it's been it's been busy indeed. <laughs> well, yes, indexing, riveting stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> but the... I mean, that's very exciting about already having, uh, what was that? Was that your second book? Your second yeah, full-length book? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, to have that out in second edition already, I mean, it, no, it is. It is. And I think it's pretty relevant. We're trying to get it out in time for the November elections. Oh, yeah, so absolutely. we're kind of crossing our fingers and hoping that there's a, a Christian nationalist running on the GOP ticket, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, we'll see well, about that. Yeah. The, well, the life, the life of a historian, <laughs> Drew, is never done, which actually then leads us to the focus of our episode today. We thought that it would only make sense for a podcast like this to start off by discussing the role that history plays in a democratic society and why, frankly, why we need more history. This week, Drew, I came across a great quote from the late historian John Hope Franklin. Some of you know him as probably one of our greatest historians of the African-American experience. Franklin said, quote, one might argue the historian is the conscience of the nation if honesty and consistency are factors that nurture the conscience. I love that quote, historians as the conscience of the nation. And ultimately, it's true. We're truth tellers, right? And, and we really have this kind of noble calling, this noble vocation. Speaking of which, you know, let's 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 tell our stories here for a second. How did you how did you become a historian, Drew? Well, in a certain sense, I'd say I've always been a historian at heart. In fact, uh, actually, the subject of some of my earliest historical inspiration is going to come up during uh, the interview later in the show. But that being said, when it came time for me to declare a major as an undergraduate, which you well know is my advisor, history was a no-brainer. But at that point, I had no intention of going into academic uh, life. In fact, I'd planned on going to seminary and seeking ordination in the Episcopal Church. However, after college, I shifted focus and took a job teaching middle school history at a very small private school. And in the process, the English teacher and I started seeing each other, and we eventually married. And seeing as it was a faculty of about six people, we decided that I should leave. And it was then that my wife, having seen my passion for history, encouraged me to pursue the academic life. That's right. I remember, I think the first day we met, I think, I was your advisor, and you said to me, you know, I'm majoring in history, but after this, I'm going to Sewanee or, you know, I'm becoming an Episcopal priest. You know, that was the that was the goal, right, for a while there. For a while there, yeah. But how about you? I don't actually I don't know if I've actually heard your story either. Well, I, I actually came to history in a kind of very backward way and actually seminary factors in as well. Uh, when I was a kid, I either I can't remember, I either saw the movie or I read the book, All the President's Men, about the Watergate scandal. And that really inspired me. I wanted to become an investigative journalist. I wanted to be, you know, just like Woodward and Bernstein. You know, and, and I, would, I would probably say as a kid, apart from like Tom Seaver or Bob Greasy, uh, they were two of my childhood heroes. When I was 15, my life took a little bit of a different trajectory. I had a religious conversion experience. And it's at that point that I kind of had a call, a call as they say in the Christian tradition, uh, to the ministry. So after I graduated from college, I went to seminary. I took a lot of church history courses there. And it was there, actually, in an in a evangelical theological seminary that I really fell in love with the practice of history uh, and its importance in the world today. So to make a long story short, I, I guess you could say I never looked back. I finished the MDiv, headed off to graduate school in American history to get my PhD, uh, and 
you know, here I am. It's definitely been an interesting ride. Uh, but in the end, I think it was my original passion, that passion to be an investigative journalist, researching, you know, uncovering and explaining events, exposing things, writing, uh, that's really translated, I think, well into my career uh, as a historian. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I mean, it seems like we have a lot of parallels in our stories, but also our trajectories kind of went in opposite directions. Um, so, I mean, that's that's an interesting coincidence. So what's on the docket for today, Drew? What do we have? Well, as you mentioned, today we're going to be framing our discussion moving forward, setting the tone for the season as a whole, which is why we're so excited to have James Grossman on the show. He's the executive director of the American Historical Association, and he's going to be on the show almost directly after the end of the annual meeting of the AHA. And so during this interview, uh, Jim is going to discuss a wide range of history-related topics, including things such as hashtags, historical monuments, and presidential debates. Yeah, I first met Jim, I think it was maybe three or four years ago. He invited a group of history bloggers to meet with him and some of the AHA staff at one of the meetings of the American Historical Association. And what really impressed me the most was uh, Jim was really interested in the idea of blogging as a legitimate form of doing history. And he listened to us, you know, and he, he seemed to be very uh, interested in using blogging and other forms of social media as a as a means of communicating history to a general public and i think he'll talk a little bit about that as well uh in our interview yeah so definitely a a great guest to have as we open up this new venture in historical thinking but before we get to the interview we begin with a story by you john sharing those things with others. I think at the very core, all historians, whether they write, do podcasts, prepare exhibits, or stand in front of a classroom, are in essence teachers. We communicate the past and its importance. I remember the University of Wisconsin-Madison environmental historian Bill Cronin saying, and I think this was during his recent American Historical Association presidential address in New Orleans, Cronin said that historians cannot afford to be boring. And, you know, it's really true. Historians are often working with one strike against them because so many Americans had bad experiences in their middle school and high school classes. So the more I began to immerse myself in the practice of history, the more I realized that historians really do think differently from everyone else. We approach the world from a different perspective. I love what my Messiah colleague Joseph Huffman likes to say. He says that historians see the world of human experience as a multi-layered thing, and thus students of history develop a four-dimensional way of thinking. Again, not just the three dimensions of the current material world, but time. Time matters. And putting time in the mix changes the way we understand things.
I guess it was about six or seven years ago that I ran across an article in the AHA magazine, Perspectives on History. Uh, It was written by historians Thomas Andrews and Flannery Burke, and it was entitled The Five C's of Historical Thinking. When I read it, I loved how they framed the unique way in which historians see the world. So I decided to use these five C's, and if I could just name them quickly, the five C's of historical thinking, change over time, context, causality, contingency, and complexity. I use these five terms both in my book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? And then I elaborated on them more fully in my book, Why Study History? Because I think they really get at the way that historians interpret things. So for example, historians chronicle change over time. I think it was the historian Gordon Wood who said, the historian describes how people in the past move chronologically from A to B, with B always closer to us in time. I think this is why so few historians, for example, are comfortable when they hear people make these huge leaps from the present back to the past. Take the so-called original intent interpretation of the United States Constitution. The Constitution, of course, We all know it's a product of the 18th century world in which it was created. But we also have to admit that that world has changed. And as a result, the Constitution has changed to adapt to the developments that have taken place in that world. So yes, the 18th century document known as the Constitution offers principles and guidelines for how the country should be governed. But historians know that some aspects of the original intent of the Constitution may no longer be applicable in a modern world, whether it be slavery, the idea of a militia in the Second Amendment, or the specific application of individual rights to specific groups of people. Yet we in the present too often want to reclaim the ideas of a past world without acknowledging the change that has occurred over the years. Historians live and work in that space, in other words, between point A and point B. Now, historians also study the past in context. Events from the past should always be understood in light of the circumstances, the settings, and belief systems in which those events occurred. It was the historian Peter Novick who said that historians are loath to apply implicitly timeless criteria in judging what we describe and historically explain. In other words, historians are not going to take 21st century ways of thinking and superimpose them on the past. Historical thinkers, they read documents, whether it be the newspaper, today's newspaper, or a 19th century manuscript, by considering the time the particular document was written, the background of the author, the bias of the writer. So context always makes a difference. Now, I think historical thinkers also realize that specific events in the past are best understood in relationship to other events. So we are ultimately concerned with causality. Historians are not just about the recitation of facts. This is why so many students, I think, hate history in high school. No, we also want to explore and explain why particular events happened in the way they did, or how events have been shaped by previous events. Ultimately, we know that the world in which we now inhabit is the product of things that happened in the past. 
This is how we, again, we see the world around us. Everything has a history. Now, historians, I think, are also concerned with the fourth C here, contingency, the free will of humans to shape their own destinies. History is ultimately about human beings and their choices. It is the historian's task to explain the way people are driven by a personal desire to break free from their circumstances and the social and cultural forces that hold them in place. This means that the study of history can often be at odds with other possible ways of explaining human behavior, such as fatalism or determinism or the providence of God. On one level, we are all the products of the cultures that have shaped us, the worlds to which we have been born, so to speak. Karl Marx suggested that human action is always held in check by the, quote, circumstances directly encountered, given, and transmitted by the past, unquote. But ultimately, historians leave the interpretation of those circumstances to the philosophers and the theologians. We, on the other hand, are in the business of explaining why people, people as active human agents, have behaved in the past in the way that they did. And then finally, historians realize that the past is complex. Human behavior does not easily conform to our present-day social, cultural, political, religious, economic, or what-have-you uh, categories. Think about the recent debates over the removal of monuments dedicated to political leaders who we would today describe as racist. So should future generations be aware of the fact that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves or possibly fathered a child with Sally Hemings? Of course they should. Should students at Princeton University be aware that Woodrow Wilson was a racist even by the standards of his own day. Again, absolutely. But to praise or condemn figures from the past for one ugly dimension of their life undermines the complexity, there's that word again, of the human experience. Jefferson, as we know, was a champion of religious freedom and individual rights. Wilson was a progressive reformer. So rather than trying to erase the past, we must learn from it in all its fullness and this often means embracing complexity and even using it as a starter for dialogue and conversation to make the world a better and more just place. I'm convinced that when one learns how to think historically, they begin to develop certain virtues that are essential to citizenship in a democratic society. Historical thinkers, for example, learn to practice empathy. They gain skill at stepping into the shoes of actors in the past to see the world as they did. I like how Yale historian John Lewis Gaddis puts it when he writes, Getting inside people's minds requires that your own mind be open to their impressions, their hopes and fears, their beliefs and dreams, their sense of right and wrong, their perception of the world and where they fit within it. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, this is a pretty good habit to master whether it be with someone who is dead that you're reading about in a history book or that person in the cubicle next to you at work who you just can't seem to figure out. It also seems to me that the practice of empathy will ultimately lead to humility. History decenters us. It makes us realize our own smallness in the vast course of the human past. In this sense, I think history is a limited discipline. It only does so much. 
We are so far removed from the past that there is no way of ever knowing for sure if our interpretation of what happened is correct. Because the past is past. Our attempt to feel the pain of the oppressed, the joy of the triumphant, or the love of country is limited by our distance from the events that we study. History, in this sense, can also shame us. The story of human history is filled with accounts of slavery, violence, scientific backwardness, injustice, genocide, racism, and a host of other dark episodes that might make us embarrassed to be part of the human race. If our fellow human beings can engage in such sad, wrong, or disgraceful acts, then what is stopping us from doing the same? History reminds us of the inherent weakness of the human condition. Or as some of us like to say in church, there but for the grace of God go I. So, in the end, we really need more historical thinkers. Whether they be professional historians with graduate degrees, or really lay men, women, amateur historians with a passion for thinking historically about their encounters with everyday life. Thanks, John. I think that this is a perfect setup for our conversation with today's guest. He's Jim Grossman, the executive director of the American Historical Association. Jim has been at the AHA since 2010, and in those years has become the nation's foremost cheerleader for the kinds of things you were just talking about. He is the author of several award-winning books, including Land of Hope, Chicago, Black Southerners, and The Great Migration, which appeared with the University of Chicago Press in 1989, and A Chance to Make Good, African Americans, 1900 to 1929, published in 1997 with Oxford University Press. He's taught history at the University of Chicago and the University of California, San Diego, was vice president for research and education at the Newberry Library in Chicago, and serves as a consultant to filmmakers, theater companies, museums, and libraries. We recently sat down with Jim to talk about the role of history in society and his vision for the American Historical Association. Drew, I can't think of a better guest for our first episode. We're talking about the role of history and its place in a democratic society. Uh, I have long admired the direction that Jim Grossman and his staff have taken the AHA over the years. Uh, and I just want to thank, thank so much, Jim, for taking the time to chat with us uh, and helping us kick off this new podcast. Thanks, John, and I appreciate the invitation, and I'm equally grateful to you for all of the suggestions that you have framed for us in your blog and for all that we've learned. Great. Well, let's get started. Um, now, again, some of the people listening to the podcast may uh, may not necessarily be professional or academic historians. So let's start with a very basic question. Uh, what is this uh, organization that you run called the American Historical Association? Maybe you could give us a quick kind of uh, primer on what you do and what the AHA does. That's a good question, because I think that many people, well, first of all, many people think that you actually have to apply to be a member of the American Historical Association. We are the largest uh, or professional organization of historians in the world. 
We published the American Historical Review, which is the most widely read, most widely cited historical journal in the world, as well as a very popular, in fact, perhaps even more popular news magazine called Perspectives uh, on History. Uh, but we're very much a membership organization driven by the needs, the goals, uh, the desires of our members. We have about 13,500 members, uh, and many are professional historians who work in a wide variety of venues, uh, universities, colleges, high schools, national parks, museums, the private sector. And many of our members are people who are not professional historians, but who are avid consumers of history, uh, mostly readers, uh, but also, I suspect, people who get their history from television, from film. Uh, my guess is that most of our members who are not professional historians uh, are uh, history readers. Sure. Coming up through graduate school, obviously, I always associated the American Historical Association as an organization for academic historians and for scholars. Uh, but I know within the past several years, you and your staff uh, and the various presidents of, of the American Historical Association have been making a lot of efforts to, to broaden that tent. Uh, who are the kind of people that are now coming in under the tent of the AHA that are not uh, your traditional kind of academic historian who teach at a college and a university or a university? I think I can answer that question mainly by telling, by talking about who we're trying to talk to and who I hope we are sure. talking to, which is everybody with an interest in history. If you look at our mission statement on our website, uh, and especially if you look on our website on a new document, which is called the Year in Review, which is basically a description of everything we do, what you'll see is that our mission is the promotion of history, historical thinking, and historical work. Mm -hmm. Nowhere does it say our motion, our, our uh, mission uh, is to promote professors. Uh, right. We are mostly professors, that is true. Uh, but the goal of the AHA and its members is the promotion of the work that we do and the importance of history and historical thinking uh, in American public life. Great. Now, now, in light of that, you recently published a column in the December 2015 uh, issue of Perspectives on History, which you just mentioned is one of the sort of flagship publications of the AHA. And the title of that column was Everything Has a History. Uh, why is this important to remember? Well, I, and I, before I even answer that question, I want to acknowledge my, my debt to my colleague, Jackie Jones, at the University of Texas. Uh, this is an interview footnote. But it's also, I think, uh, giving her credit. Uh, in her book, uh, The Dispossessed, uh, on the second page, very, very early on, uh, Jackie says, starts off paragraph, she says, poverty has a history. When I read that years ago, I was struck by it. Uh, that kind of very short, quick statement about the significance of what she was doing. And I remembered it for years. And when I came to the AHA, uh, I kept thinking about it and realized that everything has a history. Poverty has a history. War has a history. Marriage has a history. There is nothing that doesn't have a history, uh, which means that we as historians are always or should always be involved in public conversation about anything. Uh, it means that, perhaps arrogantly, we have something to say about everything, because everything has a history. That means that 
you can't understand anything really without understanding that history, without understanding context, without understanding how we got to where we are. Uh, the clearest example, that's the easiest one, uh, in terms of contemporary America, is the, um, is the economic cr the, the crash, uh, now nearly a decade ago, uh, which some people argue had at least something to do with the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which mm -hmm. is the Banking Act passed, uh, passed uh, at the beginning of the New Deal, uh, or actually even before. Uh, Glass-Steagall established uh, some walls. Those walls were breached after it was repealed uh, in, in the 90s, and we paid a price for it. And I think most historians and many economists now recognize that the walls that were taken down with the repeal of Glass-Steagall created a lot of the problems that we found uh, nearly a decade ago. And quite frankly, my guess is that very few of the people who voted for that repeal actually understood why it was there in the first place. Sure. You hear Glass-Steagall coming up now all the time in these, uh, in these debates, these presidential debates, especially on the GOP side. Yeah. Because people have figured out that it was there for a reason. Uh, right, right. All regulations, all government regulations are there for a reason. All rules are there for a reason. You don't pass a law or create a rule in an institution unless there's something wrong happening. Uh, you know, people very seldom just uh, have this light bulb go off over their head saying, hey, we should have a rule. Usually it's something bad happened and we need to make sure this doesn't happen again. And so let's figure out how to make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, if we're going to change those rules, get rid of them, change them, add to them, we need to understand why they're there in the first place. We need to understand how they evolve. We need to understand whether or not, for example, the enforcement of a regulation has been more important than the existence of it in terms of why it's, it may not be working. Uh, any institution, when we criticize institutions, we need to be able to understand, is it the institution's existence that's a problem, or is it mm -hmm. the way that institution is operated? Uh, everything that we do is based on the past. Uh, all prediction is based on experience. You can't predict, really, with that. I mean, look at what he, the work that economists do, their modeling is all based on what has happened in the past. Wonderful, wonderful. We are we are the arbiters of everything. No, absolutely. That's a very daunting task, but yet a very important one, I think, uh, for historians. Now, you have moved beyond even the the uh, December 2015 column, and you have started uh, a new hashtag on Twitter. A hashtag everything has a everything has a history uh, is the is the hashtag. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that hashtag has been received, uh, and uh, you know the 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 sort of mentality behind establishing it. Uh, I, I, that's a hard question, especially for me to answer, because I'm a naive when it comes to social media. <laughs> uh, I've been on Twitter not nearly as long as you have. I probably have fewer followers than you do. Uh, this was an idea that I had as I began to learn a little bit more about how Twitter works and how hashtags work, that if you use hashtags, you gain followers. All stuff that's very elementary to you uh, were, were revelations to me. Uh, but what I realized was that historians, uh, in essence, we need, we need a tagline. We need uh, something that reminds everybody. Uh, and the other thing is that as I was 
reading on Twitter day after day. I do look every morning and usually in the middle of the day. And uh, I read the news. I read two newspapers every day. Uh, you realize that there is nothing that you read that does not that does not somehow involve history and historical thinking. And so what I was realizing was nearly everything that I was linking to on Twitter was about history, uh, even though it wasn't really about history. And it seemed to me that historians now need to not only remind everybody that everything has a history, but every time we see something on Twitter uh, and can historicize it, we can do that through the everything has a history uh, hashtag. So... Uh, you know, there, I, there was something that I retweeted the other day uh, relating to holiday food uh, and how, how certain uh, foods had evolved. Well, everything has a history, including sourdough. Right. I, I, love, I love Jim. I love Jim following you on the, uh, again, back to these, these political debates. I was following you on one of the recent debates and everything, uh, you know, you were, you were hashtagging everything has a history as each of these candidates were, uh, were mentioning. It was, it was great to, it was great to, to see. That seemed to me the kind of thing a historian can do. So, so the fact-checking journalists watch these debates and they're constantly checking the facts, which is a good thing. It seems to me that the role of the historian in watching debates is to be watching for the historical references. Okay. Uh, where are they invoking history by implication, even if not directly? Uh, every time a candidate refers to the way things used to be, <laughs> they are doing history. Every time a candidate says, we have lost X, right. they're doing history. They are practicing history. So it's clear that when you watch these debates, uh, much of it, in fact, is about history. I think this, if I can jump in here, I think this is very interesting. And, and um, I must say, Jim, I think you might be selling yourself a little short there as far as your uh, Twitter savvy, because uh, <laughs> this, ha this hashtag, I think, is, is really a, gets to the essence of exactly what um, people my generation do when they're on Twitter, you know, and, and the way we try to engage with ideas, connect um, different thoughts by different people through one particular kind of distillation of an idea. And for those of us who are historians on Twitter, I think um, hashtag everything has a history really makes a lot of sense. Um, so in doing that, are you, are you really suggesting that more historians need to become more savvy with this approach to media, with social media? It's probably a good idea. I, you know, um, I don't think I need to make that recommendation. I think that's something that is a generate, obviously a generational change. Uh, I think people people are comfortable communicating in the ways that they're accustomed to communicating, and those of us who are learning how to use social media in different ways, I think that's great. Uh, people who are not comfortable using social media uh, can be writing things for local newspapers. Uh, there are still local newspapers in nearly every community. Uh, there are many ways in which we can communicate with our, with not only our colleagues, but our neighbors. It doesn't have to be social media. I would love to see more historians communicating in every way they possibly can. I don't care if it's radio. 
op-eds, television, uh, going on the school board, and therefore communicating with their community about the type of education our children should be getting. There's lots of different ways in which we can communicate, and social media uh, is not necessarily to be privileged over others. What, let's let me pick up on that a little bit. Uh, let's just say uh, you're you're an academic historian, or there's an academic historian listening out there, or even maybe a, even maybe a blogger or something. How how give us some examples of how we can uh, think creatively about getting this message, uh, whether it be everything has a history or the principles of historical thinking. You mentioned some ways a few minutes ago, but what are some practical ways to get started? I think the easiest way to get started is for all of us to be constantly thinking about ourselves uh, as part of a conversation. Uh, in a recent document relating to something else that the AHA has produced, uh, Ed Ayers wrote that, that scholarship is, in essence, a conversation is participation in a conversation. And in our case, it's a participa it's participation in a conversation about history, about what history is, why it's important. And every historian I know is a historian because they think it is important and they think it's interesting. And when we teach, whether we teach in a classroom, a national park, uh, a museum, uh, when, we, when we teach, when we interact with people uh, trying to help them learn more about history, we're usually communicating to them about something we think is important. So if that's the case, then why limit ourselves to a single venue? Again, whether that venue is a classroom or an exhibit. There are simply many ways in which we can uh, both educate the public and engage the public uh, and listen to the public. One of the things that we need to take advantage of is the fact that History is probably the discipline that is most easily engaged in public culture. Uh, there is no sociology channel. <laughs> uh, there's no uh, literary criticism channel. People read literature uh, a lot more than they read literary criticism, which I wish people did read more of. But people read history. Uh, they do genealogy. I think it's something like three million genealogists in the United States. Uh, if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, you will see more historical work than you will see uh, sociology, literary criticism, geology, physics, whatever. Uh, you'll see politics, but not that much political science. Uh, we are the discipline that people engage the most, for better or for worse, is not being critical of other, of other disciplines. Uh, we happen to, for some reason, uh, be involved in a, in a discipline that people seem to easily find engaging, probably because we're in the business of narrative. Uh, we historians tell stories, and people like to engage the stories that we tell. So we have a big audience, but I think that we have not taken advantage of the size of that audience. We have not taken advantage of the interest that people have in, in what we do. And partly it's because I think that we have we have uh, we have not been successful in breaking down the wall, not the wall, in breaking down barriers between people seeing history as an avocation, something that they enjoy, uh, and people seeing history as something that is essential to understanding every aspect of their life. 
No, I think that's absolutely right. I, it, it always strikes me. It always strikes me as well that, you know, the I, I think it was David Thelen at some point said this in, in one of his books that, you know, the, the subject that everybody complains about uh, in high school and in elementary school that they don't like, uh, then they're, they when they become adults, they start spending, uh, you know, millions of dollars on vacations and, you know, books and all of these things, you know, so there there is this. Because that initial engagement is with a textbook. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and the later engagement is with a historic site, is with a place, or is with uh, an exciting narrative. Uh, sometimes it's through historical fiction. Uh, we, oddly enough, we first engage people in a mode that's boring, and then we get lucky that somehow they're persistent enough to engage us again three decades later. <laughs> right, right. You mentioned that there's a generational difference, perhaps, on the social media front. I'm wondering if you sense a general, a, a sort of generational difference between uh, among historians of, you know, those who are willing to get out there and do this kind of public work that you're talking about versus the more traditional, if you will, uh, academics who are just very comfortable kind of in the ivory tower or in their uh, their their studies. Um, do you think there's a generational difference there between the way, uh, you know, people approach uh, making history public? I think there's probably more diversity than you're suggesting, okay. uh, more diversity uh, whatever the generation is. Uh, my dissertation advisor uh, wrote a textbook, wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning work of history, lectured to six or 700 more students per quarter, uh, made two films, uh, lectured opposite Shelby Foote on the Delta Queen and okay. managed a rock band. Wow, wow. <laughs> That's right up your alley, Drew. Yeah. Where's the line? Uh, that's what I learned in graduate school, uh, was that history is something that you do in a variety of venues. And so, and he certainly, I would not describe him as a younger generation scholar. Sure. Uh, so I think that there's been tremendous diversity in our discipline uh, for a long time. You can go back to someone like Charles Beard, or the webs in, in England, um, Toynbee. Uh, historians have for a long time been engaging with public culture. So I, I don't think that we're necessarily breaking with tradition. We may be breaking with what we think is tradition. Right. Uh, right. But actually, it's very much uh, in the tradition of our discipline to be involved in this way. Well, I mean, I think this is very interesting. And I think a lot of what you're saying here, Jim, is hinting at maybe the ways in which those of us who are involved in academic history can afford to maybe loosen up a little bit. But, um, you know, we have a lot of listeners, I think, who who love history and who um, really care about the study of history, but who probably do not consider themselves historians. Uh, how might you advise them as a leader of a professional organization of historians? How might you advise them to encourage his history and historical thinking in within their communities? I think there's a variety of ways people can do that. I think uh, one very easy way is that uh, just about anybody can do an oral history of uh, older generations in their family and community. Uh, if you go to the website of something called the Chicago Metro History Education Center, 
what you'll see is an organization that has 17,000 middle and high school students doing local histories. Uh, whether it's a history of the church down the street, the local hardware store, uh, politicians, um, the, the Cubs, whatever. Uh, these are all students who, without sophisticated uh, you know, advanced academic training, without sophisticated tools, but with dedicated teachers helping them learn how to ask good historical questions, are able to engage uh, the past. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, 3 million Americans, I think it is, maybe more, uh, are engaged with genealogy. Uh, genealogy becomes history when you contextualize. Mm. When you take that family tree that you're working on and ask why somebody was where they were at a particular time. Uh, okay, so, you know, Uncle Bob, uh, you find Uncle Bob in Cleveland in, in 1910. Uh, why was he in Cleveland in 1910? What might have he been doing? Uh, who might he have had trouble with? Uh, what successes did he have? Why? Uh, what things did he do perhaps that one might be less than proud of and why? Uh, I think this helps us learn to engage with history that we're not necessarily proud of. It helps us to understand that it's not unpatriotic to think of the national past as including things that we are proud of and less proud of. Uh, so I think there's many ways for people to get started uh, by looking at the past around them. Uh, there are very few communities that don't have historical markers nearby, historical sites nearby. Uh, and then there are no communities where there aren't social studies teachers teaching uh, middle school and high school history. And people can support the work of those teachers, support the work of their schools. Uh, I would love to see more people who have an interest in history uh, serving on school boards, supporting the historical work that teachers are doing. Well, I love that you bring up genealogy. Uh, I'm, as a historian now, uh, my interest in history was first piqued by my grandfather's genealogical work, and so uh, I think that is a very, um, it's a very salient uh, point that you make um, in regards to the way genealogy lends itself to be contextualized and and i think in a in a certain sense much of my professional career has been an attempt to contextualize those first stories that i heard as um as a young kid i think that's more true for many historians than people even realize that sometimes it might even be unconscious the extent to which our his interest in history has to do with things that we heard when we were growing up, people we met when we were growing up, things that we were curious about when we were growing up. Uh, history history is, is, is not only stories, but in many ways it starts with questions that turn into stories and then into an attempt to understand the meaning of those stories. Jim, we have only a couple minutes left uh, uh, as we approach the new year. Uh, what, what can we expect this year from the American Historical Association? Well, the first thing you can expect is the very first week of the new year, uh, beginning January 7th, actually, the end of the first week of the new year. Uh, at our annual meeting, we will have a plenary session on uh, Confederate iconography and its history and meaning. Uh, the perfect example of why historians are essential uh, to conversations in national public culture. 
uh, all over the country, uh, certainly in the South, but elsewhere as well. There are now debates over what do you do with places that are named yeah. after people with less than savory reputations, whether it's uh, an association with the Confederacy and the institution of slavery uh, or uh, or other things, that, uh, other aspects of our past that we're less proud of. Uh, the, there are communities out west now that are dealing with uh, founders of communities where part of the founding had to do with uh, forced removal, if not um, massacres, of Native populations. Uh, what, what do we do with people who were considered heroes in a different historical context, uh, but we now realize are, um, let's just say, less than heroic? Uh, the first thing is we need to engage, probably, rather than erase. Uh, erasure does not create opportunities for education. Uh, the second thing is that it, it, is that we need to help the public understand the concept of revisionism. Uh, the revisionism has come to be a word associated with untruth. People say, well, that's revisionist history, meaning it's not true. Revisionism happens when we learn that something that we once thought isn't the case anymore, whether it's because we have new documents or we think in different ways. Uh, as I've said in, in one piece that I've published, uh, I don't think anybody wants to get cut up by a surgeon who's not reading revisionist medicine. <laughs> right. And so true. So the same is true about history. So when we think about the past and about people who have been assigned in the past heroic roles uh, and say, well, we don't see them that way anymore. What we're doing is we are doing revisionist history. And that's the importance of continuing to do history is continuing to revise as we learn new things, as we ask new questions. So that's the first thing that the AHA is going to be doing, is raising some of these questions at its annual meeting in Atlanta uh, on from January 7th through 10th. Uh, we'll be trying, we'll, the, our, our plenary is free and open to the public, and will be uh, from now on at our annual meeting. And we hope that people will come to listen to Distinguished historians wrestle with some of these with some of these ideas. Uh, wrestle with the difference, say, between history and heritage. Uh, heritage generally is something that makes us comfortable. We invoke our heritage. We even, quite frankly, uh, commodify our heritage. Uh, history, in some ways, uh, ought to make us uncomfortable. Uh, doing history means to ask questions uh, and to, quite frankly, not know the answers. If we know the answers, why do the research? So we have to be asking questions that might in the end make us uncomfortable. So that's one thing. We're also going to be continuing and trying to do more relating to uh, how we teach history, how we help our students learn history, uh, whether at the college level or high school level. There's a variety of issues that we want to deal with, uh, especially uh, we've done the last few years, we've spent a lot of time working on the history major. And now we'd like to expand that to thinking about how we can better engage students who are not history majors. Uh, how do we engage students who come to college interested in business and STEM disciplines? How do we not, it's not that we want to convince them that they'll be better people by learning history, which we obviously we believe they will. That doesn't get you very far, to be honest. John, you, you're well aware of that, I think, as college right. professor. If you want that business major uh, 
to take a history course or that chem major to take a history course, I think you have to convince her that she will be a better chemist or a better business person mm. if she learns some history. And this is something that we haven't thought too much about, and I think we need to start to think about. So that's going to be on our agenda as as well. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, you know, it, where I teach, we've kind of given up the idea of trying to measure our success as historians in a liberal arts institution by how many majors we have, but rather by how many uh, non-majors are taking history courses. It's a very different measuring tool, and I'm glad the AHA is taking that up. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. We I know that this is a very busy time of the year. Thanks for taking the time and really for modeling, uh, I think, what a publicly engaged historian uh, should look like. So again, thanks for being with us. Paul, thank you for offering me the opportunity, John and Drew. I much appreciate it. was such a great interview, Drew. I ended the interview wanting to go out and tell all of my friends to sign up for Twitter and start using hashtag everything has a history. I've been on Twitter lately and that hashtag really seems to be catching on. What about you? What was your takeaway? First of all, we should note that the interview was recorded before the meeting of the AHA, but we will be releasing the podcast after the AHA is concluded. But with all the discussions going on currently about historical monuments on college campuses, needless to say, the repercussions of that plenary session are certainly going to be felt by a lot of people, many of whom may have little idea about the way organizations like the AHA influence popular culture. Hopefully Jim's words on the subject can serve as a concrete example of how everything indeed does have a history. But beyond that, I'm not going to lie, getting the first interview in the books gives me a bit of an adrenaline rush. Yeah, if we could tell our listeners uh, about five or ten minutes after the after the interview is over, I get a text from Drew, and it says, uh, you know, that exact thing. I think that was the line. No lie, I'm on an adrenaline rush right now. It was such a great interview. Well, I mean, this is my first time producing a podcast. This is your first time hosting one. A lot of technology involved. It was a little touch and go there for a little <laughs> bit. But we got through it, and I think we got some really, really great um, – some great ideas out of Jim. And we hope you enjoy it, too. Well, John, I think that's a wrap for episode one. Yes, indeed. And this was fun, wasn't it? I think so. I think we should do it again in a couple weeks. What do you think? I'd say I'm all in. So, everyone, thanks for listening to the podcast. And may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Many thanks to Ed Ark, the station manager, for his support. Original music is by Overholt. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermling, and your host is John Fia. Tune in on January 31st as we continue to explore how everything does indeed have a history. Specifically, we will be discussing the history of the culture wars, and we will be sitting down to talk with Daniel Williams about his latest book, 
on the history of pro-life political activism, Defenders of the Unborn.